You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Luke chapter 1, verse 39 through 56. Verse 39, in those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. And he has shown strength with his arm, and he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever, And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great text that we come to, uh, a text that really elevates us and takes us uh, to places that are extraordinary, Father. We pray, Father, as we we look at this text this morning, Father, you would raise our hearts, O Father, to view these things, that, Father, you would be pleased, O Lord, to teach us from your word. That, Father, the instruction that you give us would cause our hearts to worship and glorify you, O Father. And as we see what you have done, O Lord, fill our hearts with thanksgiving and praise. That we, too, would also uh, magnify you with our souls. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And Amen. Well, as I introduced last week, you know, it, it, when, when it comes to... Uh, the season of Advent, um, I can give you a, kind of some insight from this side of the pulpit. You're always looking for new new themes and new ways to approach the uh, the Advent story. When you when you return to these texts every year, uh, year after year after year, you're you're looking for new and fresh ways. And I've never approached the text the the way that uh, we introduced last week is to approach it in music. You know, and, it's, and I'm surprised I've never done that because I'm one whose music has been an important part of my life for as long as I can remember. I've always been into music, and music actually is very prominent in the Scriptures. We have a hymnal in the Bible, the Psalter, and we have uh, examples of the saints breaking forth into song. For example, we'll be studying the Song of Moses in our study of Exodus uh, when we get to Exodus 15. And uh, here uh, we, we have examples of song here in the birth narratives. And so last week we started with a, a song, um, Psalm 138, where we began 
we just began to introduce the theme of thanksgiving. And I, I really like the idea of just starting in Psalm 138 as a bracket, if you will, and going through the season of Advent and then completing uh, uh, the season of Advent with going back to Psalm 138 and concluding Psalm 138 with another bracket so that we're looking at the season of Advent through the lenses of thanksgiving. Um, and we're doing it through the songs that we have uh, in Scripture. So this is uh, what uh, this is our approach uh, this morning. And there's another uh, thing in regards to the structure, another matter of housekeeping, which I think you'll find very fascinating and interesting. A couple of scholars in particular have likened these songs, like the Song of Mary, for example, which we're going to look at briefly this morning, um, has likened them to an area. And when I say area, I'm not referring to area with an E, A-R-E-A, like an area on your desk um, or an area in the room, but A-R-I-A. How many have heard of the word A-R-I-A? Of course. Uh, My first exposure to the word area with an I uh, was a guitar that I owned years ago, and I never really put much thought to why it was called an area. Um, I really didn't care. I only cared what it sounded like. Uh, But what a perfect name for an instrument, especially a solo instrument. What is an area? A-R-I-A. It's a place, if you think of a musical, for example, it's a place where the narrative stops. Like in a musical, you'll have the the actors and actresses uh, going through, if you will, uh, the narration. And they'll begin communicating the narration to the audience through uh, singing and through various uh, movements, if you will, communicating the narrative, if you will. And then once they've gone through a few scenes uh, where enough of the narrative has been brought forth, well, then they'll stop where the action and the narrative practically moves to a halt and you'll have a soloist come out. And what is the, what is the point of the soloist coming out? Well, the soloist comes out with an area. And the point of the area is to now begin in song to explain the significance, if you will, of the narrative that has developed so far so that the audience can begin to marinate in the significance of what is being communicated. Does that make sense? And we might not think about it. You watch a musical and you see what's going on and you might not think much about it, but it's cleverly uh, written. If the musical is good, it's clever, cleverly written in order to do that. And um, these scholars, Tanhill and Watts, they have pointed out that that's exactly what we have going on here with Mary's song, where uh, as we go through this, you're going to see where the narrative practically stops. And it's, it's, uh, in here we have this song, if you will, of Mary, where she now begins to interpret the significance of the events that have taken place so that the reader may pause with her and take in and marinate, if you will, uh, in the significance of what God has done. Does that make sense? It's really a wonderful way of looking at this. So in, in our text this morning, we, we need to develop a little bit of the context. If we're going to marinate in the significance of something, we need to know what that, uh, what that something is. If you look at verse 39, you read those first words there, in those days. And here Luke is giving us a time marker, in those days. And we might ask, well, in what days? Well, in the days of what the church has historically called the Annunciation. How many have heard of the Annunciation? 
And I like to bring up these words because these words remind us that we do not exist in isolation from church history. In other words, we don't exist in isolation from the saints who have gone before us. It's dangerous to do that, by the way. Uh, We stand on the shoulders of the saints who have gone before us. We are connected with them. And in fact, even as we worship, as I was bringing out last week, even as we worship, we join them in worship, don't we? We join them and we join the holy angels as we begin to worship uh, the Lord. It's not just us and Jesus. Uh, We never want to think of it that way. Uh, So I like to bring up these words, Advent, these words, Annunciation. Well, what exactly is the Annunciation? The Annunciation is Gabriel's announcement to Mary. If you look at verse 28, Gabriel is dispatched from heaven to a city in Galilee to a virgin named Mary in Nazareth. And in verse 28, he says to her, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Now, in verse 30, he says, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now, what? What a truckload is being given to this young woman. Uh, with this announcement, with this annunciation. We could spend many weeks studying all of that, couldn't we? Um, And we're we're quite familiar with it. Now, in verse 34, Mary asks the question that all of us would ask. How in the world is this going to be since I'm a virgin? And then we're taken to such a great height. Uh, Verse 35 is so amazing. Year after year, you know, of looking at this text, I've never disappointed by, I mean, the amazement is always fresh, isn't it, when we come to this text. Look how Gabriel answers Mary in verse 35. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And what does this recall? This recalls the glory cloud uh, overtaking Mount Sinai, if you will, God's presence over Mount Sinai, you know? And in the midst of God's presence, if you will, you have the creative agency of the Holy Spirit. You know, we can think about Genesis 1, you know, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And you know, then when you get to verse 2, you find the Spirit of God hovering over the abyss, if you will. Uh, the Spirit of God. Creation is a triune event, isn't it? It's a triune exercise. Father's decreeing through the Son, Holy Spirit executing that decree, if you will, making it happen. Um, and here we have, we have this uh, this overshadowing of Mary, if you will, um, overshadowing here, the Spirit coming over her so that the child who is born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, in verse 36, Gabriel gives something that Mary can have to confirm her faith. It's really wonderful. In verse 36, Gabriel says, listen, your relative Elizabeth, you know, the one who's been trying to have kids all her life and has never been able to have children, Well, guess what? She has conceived a son, and she's now in the sixth month of her pregnancy. And again, think about how this would encourage you if you were Mary. Think about how that would encourage you. Oh, there's someone I can talk to. Because who's going to believe all this, by the way? But I've got somebody who I can talk to at a really deep level and not think that I've lost my marbles or think that I've been um, unfaithful 
to Joseph. Now, Gabriel says in verse 37, nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary answers in a way, I mean, if we were beginning, if we were, if we were studying the, 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 we're going to next week, but if we were studying Zechariah uh, this morning, we would be wanting to make a comparison to the way Zechariah responds to Gabriel's announcement to him and the way Mary responds to Gabriel's announcement to her. When you look at verse 38, uh, Mary responds with such a wonderful exemplary way. She says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Let it be to me according to your word. Um, this is exemplary. Um, her faith here is, um, is astounding. And we're going to get to that here in a, f- a few minutes. So uh, the angel departs from her in verse 38. And then we have our time marker in those days. So in what days? In the days of the Annunciation. In the, in the days that are surrounding uh, this announcement of Gabriel to Mary. And in those days, we find that Mary arises. She arose and went with haste into the hill country, if you will. Uh, the word haste here could mean eagerness, if you will. William Mounts in his New Testament uh, translated, translates it eagerness. In those days, Mary arose and went with eagerness into the hill country. Um, the uh, one lexicon has a uh, interesting comment on here. It says that uh, the word that is translated haste means an earnest commitment of an obligation or an experience or an earnest commitment in discharge of an obligation or an experience. Now, what does that? That adds another flavor to this. What is Mary doing? Uh, well, in, in, in regards to what she's experienced by this announcement, she is getting on the first train to her um, relative Elizabeth. Now, she's wasting no time. With eagerness and zeal, she's making her way. It's a dangerous journey uh, into the hill country. Uh, we're told in verse 39 to a town in Judah. And she enters the house of Zechariah, and she greets Elizabeth. And in verses 41 through 45, we also have another astounding section of Scripture, one of the most astounding sections of Scripture in the New Testament. We're told in verse 41 and following that when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what is spoken to her from the Lord. This is an incredible passage of Scripture. Now, why? Why do I say that? Well, because here we have Mary walking into uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth's house. And at the, at the moment, at the point she greets Elizabeth, Elizabeth the, the, the uh, infant, the baby that Elizabeth is uh, carrying in her womb, John the Baptist, he immediately leaps for joy. He immediately leaps for joy. And we might ask, why? Why does he do that? Because Jesus has just come into the room. Now, how in the world does that work? If you look back to verse 15 and you look at Gabriel's announcement to Zechariah, Gabriel said that John the Baptist would be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. 
Now, there's a lot of things here, and I want to get to. There's some application I want to make here for parent, for you parents that I think is going to really encourage you here. Um, but before we get to that, let's make another obvious application. How long, how long do you suppose Mary is in her pregnancy with Jesus at this point? Maybe a week? Maybe two weeks? We can't be certain. But uh, what we can be certain of is as soon as she is able to get on her way uh, to into the hill country, she makes her way. She does, it, she does it as fast as she can. We don't know how long the journey is. It's going to take a little bit of time. But a week, two weeks, my point is Jesus, even though Mary has just conceived by the way of the Holy Spirit, we have a person here. And this has obvious implications for personhood, doesn't it? When does a human being become a person? Upon conception is the answer that we must give. Upon conception. And if you, if you, well, let me digress just for a moment. Oftentimes we refer to these babies at this point as a fetus. And let's be, let's be cautious there. If we were in a, an academy, in a military academy, for example, let's suppose we were all in the Marines and we're in boot camp. Um, you know, if we're being sent into war, we're not going to refer to the enemy as mothers and fathers and sons and daughters. We're not going to refer to the enemy as a father with three children or uh, the only son of two parents in Wampum, Pennsylvania, um, or whatever. We're not going to refer to people in these personal ways. We're going to be taught to refer to them as the enemy. Now, what's the point here? The point is depersonalize them, and then you're able to do, uh, you're able, it's, it's easier to destroy them once they're depersonalized. And the, the, the idea of a fetus, how depersonalized? It's a human being. Mary comes into the room carrying a human being, and in this case, Jesus. And John the Baptist, six months in Mary's, or in Elizabeth's womb, leaps for joy. How does this happen? By way of the Holy Spirit. That's how it happens, by way of the Holy Spirit. And this brings us to another application here. If you mind me digressing just a little bit, but I always want to give encourage, <laughs> encouragement to our parents. You know, one of, what's one of the biggest worries? as parents that we have, will our children embrace Jesus? Is that the biggest worry that we have? Do we have any worries that go beyond that? And some, a lot of times you hear it suggested that children can't be in possession of the Holy Spirit until they're such an age that they make a profession of faith, and you'll hear things like that. And I heard one prominent Baptist speaker at a, um, at a Q&A session uh, when he was, uh, the Q&A was starting to segue into covenantal baptism. And as he was, and, and he was advocating his position, which is a different position. And, 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 and I, I get that. But one of the things that he said uh, in the process of advocating his position was, don't give me John the Baptist. And I thought to myself, why can't we give you John the Baptist? Why would you say, don't give me John the Baptist? He said that before anyone even brought up John the Baptist. And I thought to myself, 
why he didn't offer any reason why we shouldn't give him John the Baptist. He just said in frustration, don't get me John the Baptist. Okay. Is this passage prescriptive? He could have said, this is not, this is not, this is not prescriptive, it's descriptive. To that, I would say, amen, it's descriptive. This can't be repeated. This is like Pentecost. It can't be repeated. So it is. It's, it's descriptive. It's not prescriptive. Um, is it miraculous? He could say this is miraculous. To that, we would have to say, absolutely, this is 100% miraculous. But that still doesn't disqualify John the Baptist. The fact is, if God so pleases to fill an infant still in the womb with the Holy Spirit, he can do it. This is proof that he can do it. What does verse 37 say? Nothing will be impossible with God. We know there are some things that are impossible for God. For example, it's impossible for God to lie. That's not what Gabriel's getting at. Gabriel's getting at, this is a wonder. This is an absolute wonder. And don't think God's arm is so short that he can't pull this off because he can do it. That's what Gabriel was saying. He can do it. Now, how should this encourage our parents? We're going to get to that here in a few minutes when we get to Mary's song, so hold on to that. We got some encouragement coming uh, for every parent and grandparent here this morning. And back to this, Elizabeth, here's the greeting of Mary. John the Baptist, still in her womb, leaps for joy. You know, it was uh, Maximus of Turin, a old bishop, um, for late 4th century, early 5th century bishop of northern Italy, who said that here John is while still in the womb of his mother prophesying of Jesus. You know, he is the forerunner who is to come to announce Jesus coming. And here we find him doing it. He can only do it by the power of the Holy Spirit, but the power of the Holy Spirit being operative in his life. Here he is. He's not even born yet, and he's pointing to the Savior, isn't he? He's pointing to the Savior. But Elizabeth is also filled with the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 41. When Elizabeth hears the greeting, baby leaps in her womb. Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaims with a loud cry. Notice the repetition there. She exclaims with a loud cry. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Well, Mary is blessed. She's very blessed. How does God choose to step into and dwell, to step into our world and to dwell with us? How does he choose to do it? He chooses to do it through the instrumentality of Mary's womb. And it's the fruit of her womb that makes her so blessed. You see, Elizabeth is enabled to see also by the power of the Holy Spirit. So when we go back to our Baptist friend who says, don't give me John the Baptist, this is miraculous, there isn't any of us that could see Jesus in his glory and in his beauty without a miracle taking place. It's all miraculous. A miracle has to take place in our heart to see the beauty of the Lord. A natural man, a natural woman, a natural child doesn't do that until a supernatural work takes place in their heart, opening their eyes to be able to do that. It's always a miracle, and that is prescriptive. That is prescriptive. You can see in the direction we're going here. This can be very, very comforting to all of you parents, and we're going to get to that here in a few minutes. And notice what Elizabeth also says in verse 43. Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? 
the mother of my Lord. The Greek word here is kurios. And what's interesting about that word is it's the word that, the, that in the Greek Old Testament, it's the word that is used to translate <laughs> Yahweh. Yahweh is translated in the Septuagint with the word kurios. And here, that word is being used uh, in this text. Why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? We have to be careful we don't trip over that when we say mother of my Lord. What is being discussed here? Uh, Mary cannot be the mother of Jesus in his divinity, of course. We understand that, right? Because Jesus in his divine nature is actually Mary's, not only her creator, but also her sustainer. But she is mother in terms of his human nature. We always need to make that distinction. Does everybody follow that okay? And we can fall into a real big mess if we don't make that distinction. And in verse 45, blessed is she who who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. In other words, Mary heard the promises given to her through Gabriel by God, and she believed. We could say Mary believed and it was credited to her as righteousness, right? Now, we get to... The song, the Magnificat. Some of you will have a subheading over verse 46 that says the Magnificat. Why is it called the Magnificat? In the Latin translation, it's the first word, Magnificat. And it's after this word magnifies, if you will. Um, Notice in verses 46 and 47, we have a parallel. Uh, Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. That's the first line. It's parallel, verse 47, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. You see the parallel there, my soul, my spirit. Those two are two names for the same thing. What she's referring to here is her inner life. My inner life magnifies the Lord. My inner life rejoices, if you will. What does it mean to magnify the Lord? You know, we're all probably familiar with that little magnifying glass on the screen of our computers. You know, you're shopping online. You see an object of something you're thinking about buying. You want to get a better look. There's a little magnifying glass. You click on it. It gets bigger, right? Well, the object itself doesn't really change. It just gives you a better view so that you're able to take in more of it. And that's what's going on here. My soul magnifies the Lord. She's getting a better view of God is what she's getting. And, she, and, she, and she's getting this with her soul, and her soul is rejoicing in this. Um, one lexicon uh, speaks of this magnifying, if you will, to cause to be held in greater esteem through praise or deeds, to exalt or glorify, to cause to be held in greater esteem, if you will. That is this magnification. That is this magnificat. That's why the song is called what it is called. Mary is rejoicing. And sometimes you'll hear um, this song, if you will, of Mary's um, likened to the song that we read earlier in our service from Hannah. And you'll hear people say that Hannah's song is in back of Mary's song. And that's only true to a certain extent. Mary is drawing from Hannah. But if we just look at Mary's song simply as um, uh, nothing more than citing Hannah and making her own application of it, we're selling Mary really short. Because in the process, and we don't have time to go through all this, it would be tedious and tedious it would wear us all out. But through the course of verses 46 through 55, Mary is practically quoting the entire Bible. 
She's quoting from Hannah for sure, 1 Samuel 2, but she's quoting from the Psalms in many places. In fact, she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. I'll invite you just to turn to a couple of these just so you can see. If you look at Psalm 34, for example, and this is going to make some application for what we do here every Sunday. Psalm 34, if you look at verse 3, what does the psalmist say there? The psalmist says, oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. See that? Now, there are quotations and allusions all through the Bible in what Mary is doing here. Mary says, my, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Oh, she's drawn from Genesis. Through the course of this song, she's drawn from Genesis. She's drawn from Exodus. She's drawing from First and Second Samuel. She's drawing from Job. She's drawing from the prophets, Isaiah. You see this line here, in God my Savior. I invite you to look at one more. You hear me quote Isaiah 45, 22 all the time. Take a look at Isaiah 45, 21. I don't have that verse memorized. I want to draw your attention to verse 21. Isaiah 45, verse 21. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord, and there's no other God beside me? Listen to this. A righteous God and a what? A Savior. There is none beside me. Turn to me and be saved, all ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Mary refers to God as her Savior. And uh, we, we need to stop there just for a moment. Um, it's, there, there are some theologies out there concerning Mary that are very dangerous, uh, one of which uh, views Mary as being sinless. Now, she is referring to God as her Savior. Now, Mary is a godly woman, uh, a man or a woman of faith, if you will, um, but not sinless. She refers to God as her Savior. And besides that, uh, sometimes you'll hear the, the Latin quoted and say verse 28, uh, where it says, greetings, O favored one, or you'll hear something like, uh, full of grace, Mary, full of grace. It's okay if we use full of grace, as A.T. Robinson points out. Full of grace is okay as long as we understand that Mary is a recipient of grace and not a bestower of it. You see, once we make Mary a bestower of grace, we've fallen into textbook idolatry. It's very dangerous. We have to be very cautious about that. But at the same time, let's not throw everything out. Mary is a recipient of grace. But before we move on from this point, let's think about that for a moment. Grace in New Testament categories are not wages. Grace is when we get and we receive God's favor while all along we deserve the opposite of his favor. She's full of that. That is what she's full of. In other words, Mary is getting, like the rest of us, what she doesn't deserve. Does that make sense? So here we see, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. And then she continues, he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. He who is mighty has done great things for me. Holy is his name and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Now, before I move on, we've got something on the table. Let's deal with it. I've been promising a nugget for all the parenting here. There are some cynical scholars, unbelieving scholars, that say Mary could never have written this song. She's a peasant 
from an unknown place, and there's just no way she could have wrote something so sophisticated as this. Now, that's ridiculous, and it's a really sad view of Scripture. It's a very sad view of Scripture. And in response to that, let's ask ourselves, how does Mary write this? Well, of course she does it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but that's not the all of it. That's not the all of it. Mary has grown up under the teaching of Scripture. Her parents have taught her Scripture. Her synagogue has taught her Scripture. Mary has underwent what our young ones are getting right there in the back as we speak, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, day after day after day after day. And she has stored all this up in her heart. She has meditated on this art. And as Mary gets her song, what is she doing? She's spitting out all the scripture she knows that applies to this situation. Now, I think the application for parenting and grandparenting is obvious here, isn't it? Sometimes in the grind of things, we think, what well, is it making any difference? What are we doing? Is it making any difference? And we're so busy. Guess what? Keep at it. Keep at it. And let me throw another one in the till, another example in the till. We're always praying that our children will never know a day where they didn't know Jesus. But we all know, we all know statistically speaking, not every child has that experience, do they? Some are called very early. Some not called very early. Many of you know, Tammy and I are ministering to a woman. Her name's Robin, and we've been praying for Robin. Robin is 76 years old. She wouldn't mind me telling you that. She wouldn't care. She's 76 years old. And this year, I've been able to spend a lot of time sharing the gospel with Robin. Robin has moved from someone who wouldn't come to the Bible study on Mondays to someone who would come two hours early waiting for the Bible study to take place. And she is someone who I think in this, I think over the course of this summer, sometime or another, she's embraced Christ. And every time I ask her about her faith, well, Tammy was with us on, on Thanksgiving. We've been spending so much time with her because she has no family here. And the only visitors that she's had the whole time she's been in the hospital has been either me or me and Tammy together. And on Thanksgiving, we rode up and we spent some time with her. She's a joy to spend time with. And as I talked to her about her faith, her faith was amazing, wasn't it? She's not fearful. She doesn't know how things are going to work out for her. Uh, in this life, they're not probably going to work out very well. She's okay with it because she trusts that the Lord is caring for her. Now, as I've gotten to know more and more about Robin and as I've gotten to know her only relatives who are clear out in California, her brothers, I have discovered that her mother used to take Robin to church when she was a girl. She pretty much left the church because of some, some things that happened in the church when she was about 12 or 13. Her mother, undoubtedly, what I've learned about her mother is undoubtedly, undoubtedly prayed for Robin. Come on, every parent, Lord, save my kids. If you have life in you, you're praying for your kids to be saved. If you're not praying for your kids to be saved, you probably don't have any life in you yourself. But if you have life in you, you're praying for your kids to be saved. And I'm going to guess, based on what I've heard, that Robin's mom prayed for Robin. Yet she never lived to see 
for conversion in this life. But Tammy and myself are seeing it. Does that fill you with hope and joy? That's why I'm always constantly encouraging. Keep on keeping on. Just keep on keeping on. Our assignment is to carry on. Let's not try to be a Holy Spirit because we make for a lousy Holy Spirit, as Spurgeon used to say. We just keep on keeping on. Keep on keeping on. Our God is good. We sang a song this morning to that effect, didn't we? Did we believe it? I hope so. One more thing. Um, we can't, obviously, our time is, is, we only have so much we can take at one time. I want to point out one thing about this song here, and that's the reversal. You'll notice a reversal. In verse 48, Mary says that God has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Now, here we see a great reversal. What's, what's this all about? And this theme carries on through the entire song here. What is this all about, this reversal? Well, who is Mary? In the world's estimate, who is Mary? She is a nobody from a nowhere place with a nowhere title, with a nowhere name. Right? If Mary hadn't carried Jesus, none of us would know who she was. But who is Mary in God's estimation? Oh, my goodness. She's precious. Precious beyond what we can even begin to comprehend. And which is reality? The first or the second? In other words, what is true reality? Is it the world's estimate of Mary? Or is it God's estimate of Mary? You see the reversal? The reversal of the world's value system the complete, total reversal of the value system of this world. And what is Mary saying? He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. She knows she's a nobody. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Oh, wow. Oh, look what God has done. We shouldn't read this song as to think that Mary is focused on Mary, because Mary is not focused on Mary in this song. Mary is focused on what God has done in her life and what that means for the people of God. Because look what she says next. She says um, in verse 49, For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. His mercy is for one group of people. What group of people? Those who fear him. For what time? From generation to generation. Here we are, 2,000 uh, years later nearly, 6,000 miles removed, and what are we doing this morning? This blessing is for each one of us as well. We're never going to be esteemed by this world, but you see the great reversal here. What is God bringing down? He's bringing down the proud, verse 52. He brings down the mighty from their thrones. He exalts those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things. The rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Um, a couple of quotes here. 
And we'll conclude. You know, one quote from uh, one commentary I think is really helpful here. God scatters the proud who are self-sufficient. It's self-sufficiency that's in view here. Um, This scholar writes, the proud look down on others because they do not look up to God. They do not look up to God. And in so, in the Bible, the proud are constantly presented to God's enemies. Their understanding of their will are oriented against God. They usurp the divine prerogatives. They do not have any sense of divine transcendence or scorn, both God's sovereignty and the needs of other humans because of their exaggerated opinions of themselves. Lloyd-Jones comes in and says this, everything that man boasts in, his intellect, his understanding, his power, his social status, his influence, his righteousness, his morality, his ethics, his code, every one of them is utterly demolished by the Son of God. That's pretty comprehensive. I'll read the list to you again. Um, His intellect, his understanding, his power, his social status, his influence, his righteousness, his morality, his ethics, his code. Everything that you're going to see on the news tonight. That's what you're going to see every night on the news. It's rubbish. What's interesting is Lloyd-Jones went further than saying it's Rubbish, he says it's going to be utterly demolished. It's a reversal. And it's going to be utterly demolished by the Son of God. He goes on to say, let any man arise and say he's going to govern, to be God of the whole world. You need not be afraid. He will be put down. Every dictator has gone down. They all do. Finally, the devil and all that belong to him go down to the lake of fire and will be destroyed forever. The Son of God has come into the world to do that. A lot of fear today about dictators around the world. Doesn't mean they can't create a lot of problems for us. Doesn't mean we can't be persecuted. We can't. Doesn't mean we can't die at their hands. We can. But what it does mean is unless they repent and bow their knees to the Lord, they will go down. You can count on it. They will not prevail. They never have. They never will. There's a lot of hope there for us, isn't there? I think our time is... Spent. We could go on for a good while, but why don't we conclude with that, and Lord willing, we can pick up next time. Sound okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this great reversal that we see in this great song of Mary where we began to take in, and we're only beginning to take in the significance of the annunciation, of the announcement that Gabriel makes to Mary. And here we find Mary uh, only weeks in her pregnancy and 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 John the Baptist, six months in Elizabeth's womb, is leaping for joy at the presence of Christ in the room of their house. And Father, we begin to see this great reversal. We begin to see the value systems and the, the, mighty, um, uh, the mighty and the proud uh, falling, O oh Lord. And we begin to see, O oh Lord, where you're really turning the world upside down. Uh, this whole thing is beginning in the room of this house, which is whose location is not even named. Oh, Father, we thank you for this. And we thank you especially, oh, Father, for the carpenter, for a carpenter, the son of a carpenter, will be the one who actually turns everything upside down. Oh, Father, we might say he turns everything right side up. So, oh, Father, we pray that you'll fill our hearts, oh, Father, with these things afresh uh, this morning and through this season for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.